0: Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in and listening to the Pause Reviews podcast. Quick note for you. um, These episodes are long. Nothing I can do about it. I like to talk. I like to hear my voice. And uh, so does Tim. Deal with it. But to help you deal with it a little bit, what we're going to start doing is dropping our intro song somewhere in the middle. (laughs) not just somewhere in the middle we're gonna drop it in right before we start talking about the movie as a little bit of cue for you guys so if you're in a hurry and you just want to hear what we think about today's movie you can skip ahead till you hear the song again and start there and you're gonna get our review our critique our take on this week's movie you can come back listen to the banter at a later time you want to listen to the whole thing kick back relax put your feet up because we got a show for you Thanks again for listening, guys, and we hope you love this week's episode as much as we love putting it out there for you. All right, thanks again. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's pause reviews time. Yes, yes, Yes! Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, everyone, to the Pause Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Frank, joined as always by my co-host, yes. Tim. Woo! Welcome back, Tim. Thank you, thank you. Good to have you.
1: Yep, loving it, loving it, loving it.
0: <laughs> so, uh, we are back this week. We talked to you guys a little bit last week at the end of the episode to let you know that today we are talking about Uh, A listener request, pretty excited to do this one. We watched True Romance, 1993, Tony Scott, directed, written by none other than Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, and we'll jump into that in just a second, but as always, let's get started. Let's just kind of talk a little bit, man. Um, Yeah. We've got listener questions again. Let's see. Okay, the first one comes from Ryan. We're just going to jump in, Tim, straight ahead. Let's do
1: it. Let's do it.
0: Full steam. Uh, So the first listener question comes from Ryan. So this is what he says. I was randomly thinking about the 2002 movie Ghost Ship.
1: (laughs) As one does. I mean, people do that, right? right?
0: So when I first read this, that clearly jumped out at me. (laughs) I was like, is that a fact? I don't think I've thought about it once. Um, But then he he goes on. This makes sense. While reading a recent article about a 95-year-old ghost ship found in the Bermuda Triangle, what is your pick for best underrated horror movie? Great question. This is a really great yeah. question. I will say, so I had never seen Ghost Ship. Not that he asked us to watch it or give our thoughts about that. But I was like, you know, if he thought about it, I wonder if this would be on my underrated list. Uh, spoiler alert, it isn't. Um, <laughs> so I picked that one up and gave that a watch first just to kind of get get the foundation, right? Yeah, it's not good, man.
1: It's no, it's not a no. good movie. I think there's there's two things that I remember distinctly about this movie is the cover art, uh yes. posters and everything. Yes. That yes. was that that is burned into my brain for some reason. And uh I mean 2002, I think that was like in the height of movie dates or like group movie dates for me, like high school. Mm. So I feel like that might have been on the docket at one point. Like, oh, what are we going to see this weekend? And you know, somebody was like, oh, it's too scary or something. I, I feel like that was on the list. And then Juliana Margulies, right? That yes. She's in that movie, yes. That just always was felt kind of random to me. I, I don't know. I, 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 she was big at the time. I guess I, the pieces that I have ended uh, like ended up seeing from that movie, she just, I, I don't know. I was just kind of a random person to to be in a big screen movie like that i guess i don't know
0: so i'll say this much for it it's um i i, I agree with you completely about the cover art i remember uh you and i kind of touching pace about this and saying I, I think the first words out of my mouth i was like i think that's the one with the ship and the skull yeah. kind of superimposed <laughs> on it um yeah. which show enough it is you know i think there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll kind of touch on before we get to actually answering his question. Let's see if we can hit minute 30 before we actually answer the question. Um, so it starts off really strong, actually. The opening scene is really intense, kind of where you see uh, it's this ship and you kind of witness the ship's tragedy first and then obviously the ship becomes haunted by all these people. That scene's pretty cool. It opens up kind of with this really like 1950s, like, I Love Lucy type theme music, and then, and the, actually, I really love, because the the poster art, Ghost Ship, is is very horror movie-esque, right? Whereas yeah. um, the opening credits are done in sort of like this pink, this bright pink I Love Lucy script font. Interesting. Yeah, dude, it's it's a really cool opening. I was like, maybe this is gonna be good. Yeah, Juliana Margulies, she's, I, I see her as like a television lead on a drama, obviously, but yeah. but the lead in a feature and especially a horror i struggle with that um yeah but this movie dude is packed carl urban gabriel byrne uh, obviously we talked about juliana margulies isaiah washington there's i mean there's a bunch uh emily browning a young emily browning yeah, uh, plays like the lead ghost or whatever it's dude, It's a lot of people in this one, but it is so over the top, boring, and or not boring, uh, cheesy. Like super cheesy. There's this opening scene where so once we go to present day and we're introduced to the salvage crew, right? Which is the Julianna Margulies, Carl Urban, that whole crew of folks. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right. Gabriel Byrne is like the captain slash father figure, and he's like, <laughs> the way he talks to them is is so ridiculous. You know, she's, I don't know, this ship is going down that they're trying to salvage and bring in. And and of course, she's kind of like the badass of the group that you kind of come to find, like the rogue renegade. Like, I'm jumping into all situations. And so we see her kind of going into this situation where the boat they're tugging is sinking. And, and Gabriel Burns just like, let's just scrap it. Forget about it. Let's get out of here. She goes in hot anyway. And then her team follows her. And then you just hear him over the radio like shouting these one-liners of trying to be the boss. It's just like, I told you to get back here. This is in order. And then a couple minutes in, it's, don't make me come in there and kick your ass. And it's like, they are underwater. Like, have you ever tried to kick an ass underwater? It is... Not easy to do. <laughs> no, it is <laughs> yeah. not. And so, anyways, it's it's real bad, but it's yeah. You know, I don't know, man. Part of it, it was kind of a fun watch. It just reminded me of campy, cheesy horror movies of like the early two thousands.
1: Well, um, yeah, you say you you're saying exactly what I was thinking. So I just pulling up a bunch of other movies that I feel like were around that same time, and like that. Yeah. Like Sixth Sense sort of feels like it kicked off that kind of thing in '99. And then you have, you know, all those movies that come after, like The Haunting and the others. And I was like, I feel like all of those movies were just in that, or that last bit of the 90s, early 2000s was all about ghosts. And, you know, we, but this is pre zombie, post alien, like we got into that everything was haunted everything was you know uh, we really kind of picked up at that 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 time so it's interesting
0: yeah this is 100 percent in the vein of the haunting and yeah. and like that where were you especially because you were seeing a lot of random people in horror movies that you wouldn't really expect to see carrying it and, and exactly this is the pin this is the peak of ghost hauntings and and that sort of paranormal exactly like you're saying like we had just we had just left vampires with like interview and dracula and zombies hadn't hit yet yeah that's exactly right anyway so so that being said most underrated dude i had a really hard time with this question it was such a good question
1: yeah i I, that's really fair because there's a thing with me in horror movies that movies that i know would have scared me and movies that i stayed away from early on in my life horror movies just rarely do anything for me anymore um yeah and i don't know if it's we got inundated with the torture porn horror at one point in you know and and like that bothers me because then you're talking about the bodily horror but that's in a whole different genre to me like that's like i i don't even have to gore
0: gore and yeah. horror are two different things for me
1: yeah yeah i think that's totally fair so then yeah i i started thinking i'm like well what you know what was really i don't know because i i i for a while every halloween season i went back and i picked a franchise so like one year we did all of the um uh all the friday the 13th like hit all the ogs up through you know when it was supposed to originally stop or whatever i think we went up to like five or whatever and you know halloween and that and that kind of stuff and looking at the the 80s slasher films and then some of the newer ones and uh, yeah what what makes it underrated you know what i mean it's it's tough so i came up with two but I'm not even sure. I, I I don't expect anybody to agree with me even on one of them. So <laughs> <laughs> all right, hit us, hit us with it. Jump. Up. All right. So the first one might not even be underrated, but um, the first one was Cabin in the Woods. Oh. I, I, I don't even know if you say it was underrated. It's just to me, it just it comes at you in such a different way. And it's so unexpected. And it's got all the classic tropes, but it doesn't and i just i loved it when it came out i liked that movie a lot for what it was so cabin
0: in the woods i remember when it came out i i think i saw it almost right away i remember not liking it and mm-hmm. i i think it was because i went in expecting one thing which is just yeah. a proper horror movie and, and i feel like it opened up that way like it was pretty decent and then I guess whatever, when they try to escape or you know, like they're trying to go through that mountain pass and then it's it becomes like the grid or something. Right. And then all yeah. of a sudden it becomes sort of sci fi or whatever. And to be yep. honest, I think I checked out at that point because I have yeah. I, I remember bits and pieces of them in sort of like a science experimenty type basement situation mm-hmm. and. But I, I remember very little other than that. And but yeah. but this is definitely a movie. And it's interesting when you say underrated because it gets a lot of conversation still. Like I feel like this is a movie that shows up on a lot of lists. It shows up as a lot of fan favorites. Maybe though I agree with you in the sense of underrated how? Like is it underrated in how it's different? Underrated as a true horror, whereas maybe some people don't see it that way. Is that what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, I, I I, think so, because it just I think it snuck up on me and even to and maybe underrated in a way that in what people were expecting of it. And it was it was ended up being something different.
0: Yeah, like totally but, outlandish.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, doesn't isn't that what a horror movie really should be like unexpected and different? So, yeah. I struggled, like I said, I struggled with that one. The other one, which no one will agree with me, is House of a Thousand Corpses, because (laughs) I I love more practical stuff. Like, when you get into all the CGI stuff, I just don't get, uh, it doesn't bother me. It's not real. It is definitely not real when it's CGI. Hmm. And the first time I saw House of a Thousand Corpses, I was by myself late at night watching on a, uh, 72 inch whatever screen In my parents basement And it was terrifying I mean it's got blood and guts It's got creatures It's got terrible people um, It's just a gross movie And it's such a horrifying movie Because there's just so many aspects Of it that are horrifying And it just I, I've, I've tried to show it to other people And people just They're like oh, This is really really dumb
0: Was, was House of a Thousand Corpses <laughs> Rob Zombie's first one? <laughs>
1: uh that is the first one in that trilogy right. i don't remember if that's his first one i didn't think it might be
0: well and i uh, I, I think what i'm talking about definitely is because it was that one and then devil's rejects and then
1: yeah and then the newest one that came out was three from hell which is that's ends it. that it ends that uh that trilogy to right. some degree
0: so um, it's funny you say okay so for me 2002 i graduated high school in 2002 So a lot of these movies kind of hit in this limbo between when I went to college, because I I took like a two-year gap year. This was a period of time where I didn't see a lot in theaters, but I remember vividly seeing this movie. I'm trying to remember. I had dated a girl off and on in high school and a little bit after, and I remember, I think, watching it with her and two of her friends, or maybe just with two of her friends. But I remember one of her friends, and this is why it all stands out. Dude, I had it bad for this girl. I had the biggest thing for my ex-girlfriend's friend. And I remember we went over to her house. I think she lived next door to, like, a cousin or something. He came over. There was a couple of us there, and we watched this because she wanted to watch it. Yeah, And I remember really liking it. Like, I remember being really pleasantly surprised. I wouldn't go so far as to say I was scared or anything, but it definitely sat with me. I remember it being really just intense, you know? And uh, and I remember it just being a blast. And, and of course, part of that is the people that you're with and how you're enjoying it or whatever. Yeah. But it spoke volumes to the point where, and I think I only saw it the one time, when the other ones came out, I was excited to see them. Like, I remember going to see Devil's Rejects and that kind of stuff and not being as nearly as impressed.
1: No, that movie was completely different. Yeah, and
0: I just I just quit kind of watching the Rob Zombie stuff. I know he came out with another one with his wife as the lead in yeah. Salem something or other or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, I was just kind of, I was out because nothing really met my experience of House of a Thousand Corpses. I think it's a good pick. I think that's a real strong pick.
1: Well, and what's interesting is now that I'm looking at just a little bit of the Wikipedia page, I think why that movie sits with me is actually really funny, is that Rob Zombie got his inf- uh, his inspiration while designing a haunted house attraction. Oh, um, that
0: makes perfect sense.
1: And that just fits into my love of Halloween. And when you think about it in that vein, I mean, that movie is a haunted house attraction. Like, you just you replace Fact. yourself and sit in a little doom buggy, and that is a total haunted house movie. So I think that's probably why it resonates with me, is it's just that super stylized version of everything that happens in that movie. It's just... And it goes so off the rails. I mean, you get into some of that stuff later on in the in the, the movie where they're like, they find the Dr. Satan and this guy is like uh, some kind of bizarre surgeon creature. I mean, they, 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 it just goes completely off the rails, but it is insane. So, yeah, it's that's that's I think the one where I go with that for sure.
0: No, I dig it. I think it's a good pick. So I uh, again, I struggled with this. Yeah, Man, real bad. So I have a couple, and, and I have them for for differing reasons. So uh, I'll kind of burn through them real quick, and I'll, I won't linger too much on each one. But so for me, what made it so hard is I feel like I already have a very specific criteria that must be met for me to consider you a good horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, one of them is is sort of that staying power, the creep out factor, and dare I say being scary which (laughs) as i've gotten older and i think that's it's obviously a remnant of when you're a kid and a lot more scares you and so your experience of watching a horror movie as a child is substantially different from watching as an adult the things that scare you are different and the way that things tap into you psychologically is different as a kid it's so easy you know like flash something up on the screen i'm terrified and i don't sleep for three weeks Yep. Those memories kind of stay with you and then nothing quite hits that same pinnacle. So already Never. I struggle to to think about horror movies that are truly scary. And usually the ones I can think about are like unanimously considered horribly terrifying and enjoyable by many. So it's hard to find an underrated one. So here's my list and, and each one for like a slightly different reason. First of all, I'll open up with this. I don't necessarily find horror movies based on a human element being very terrifying, right? Because, yeah, I mean, someone might come, they kill you or do whatever. And and sure, it's horrible. Happens all the time. But I feel like when battling another person, I always at least have a fighting chance, right? (laughs) Like, I can crack some skulls. and I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not going to go into every situation. I'm the champion (laughs) of all things. But, like... You know, you have a, you have a chance. Yes. This one is the exception to that. And that's The Strangers. Uh, so The Strangers is the one with, like, Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman. And it's your basic home invasion. There's something I will never forget is this one line. It's in the third act. It, everything's kind of come to pass. The, you know, they, they put up the best fight they could, and they've just been overrun by these home invaders. And... I think it's Liv Tyler, and like Scott Speedman's all busted up, and and she's kind of crying, and through through the tears, it's like you know, why are you doing this? Why us? And it's I think the only time you hear the invaders talk, and and the answer is because you were home, and it just, even though it's this human element, it, it's this this random like all everything you just watched for two hours, this struggle and this tension building and this on edgeness comes to this to this pinnacle where there isn't even a reason it's just bad luck and and it just it makes it that much more devastating and that movie just sits with me man it creeps me out it, it makes you you know it's like you could lock every door but you still don't feel safe for a couple yeah. of days it just marinates but again i think this is one that a lot of people would agree with but but i put it as underrated because i feel like it's still not as talked about as it should be like this should yeah. be on every list you know
1: yeah yeah that's that's fair i and listening to you explain that you know you think when you really get into real crime drama or whatever you you learn that a lot of violent crime is committed by people acquaintances, like, you know, you know, people, right, you right. Know, it's, it's a friend of a friend or you somehow have a relation. And when you get into situations like that, that does just kind of amp that back up because like you said, you're just happen to be there. You happen to be at the right place at the wrong time. You
0: can't wrap um, your brain around. It's like if yeah. I would have treated this one person with a little more love or respect, or if I would have done this one thing different, but when you look at and assess the situation, it's, it wouldn't have matter what you did. It was, right. It was just right. that you were here. We don't yeah, know I, you. You didn't piss us off. You're not right. evil. Like there's yep. just no rhyme or reason, and it's yep. like, oh my god.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I having uh, just finished uh, a big podcast series on the DC sniper killings. It's it's very much the same way where it was just they were picking off random people that had no. They were just you know at the gas station or running the convenience store just picking people off because that's where they were and they could do it. And that is just inherently more terrifying. So to capitalize that in a, in a movie is, is absolutely true. I mean, you, like you said, you watch two hours of it just to find out that like any, any minute change, it could have been your neighbor or somebody else down the street, but.
0: Well, it's and not. I think, yeah. And what sits with you about it is, is you're looking for the one thing that you're looking for the, you need the reason. Right. Because the reason, hopefully you get to the end and what the reason does for you is it says, well, I don't do that. So I'm good. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But when you get to the end and it's like, there's no reason, then it could be you. And and oh, my God, I'm home right now. (laughs) That's exactly right. I'm watching this. And so it's it's that moment where it becomes very personal. And therefore, I, I think it's that beat where the movie beautifully just really sinks the terror into you for a second. Yeah. And, and it's it's fantastic. It's a great movie. Uh, I mean, it's a terrible movie, but also great. Um, okay, so, so the next one, I think that'll probably be the one I dwell on the most. So the next one is, so again, what I really look, what really terrifies me the most is paranormal, but especially, you know, demonic type Ugh. stuff. And, and, you know, we've talked a bit about it. I am a Christian. And so yep. I very much believe in these things. It's probably why I've really- Not watched as many
1: horror movies as I used to. We do not mess with Ouija boards or Ouija movies, dude. I wanted one so
0: bad as a kid, and my mom was like, You've lost your mind.
1: Yep, we used to draw them up, we
0: would draw them up on paper and stuff. And if she would find them, I mean, she would just tear your ass red, like it was big time. So, in that vein, obviously, there's a lot of movies like that, but the right. R-I-T-E, stars Anthony Hopkins. It's in the vein of The The Exorcist. It's the story based on a true story, but it follows, I believe, an Italian priest or a priest in Italy, and it tells the story of essentially an exorcism that he does and kind of goes bad and so on and so forth. I'm not going to dwell on it because it creeps me out. (laughs) I put it as underrated because I don't think I've ever seen it on a list, and I think it was generally regarded as a failure when it came out as a as a horror movie but i remember watching it and just it got into my bones man it super creeped me out it felt so real it's something if you believe in that kind of thing it will just get you to your core and that's what this one did so it's on my list of most underrated especially when it comes to that exorcism style film
1: yeah i mean having a a similar faith background or the catholic background it was always kind of a an interesting subject matter because it's one of those things where like it's sort of the fascinating end of the religion but it's one that's roundly denied or not talked about it's it's almost as if it's like this relic of of a different time so it's always been sort of that fascinating kind of like rogue end of the catholic faith to me but it's actually interesting just looking at some of the stuff you're mentioning about the the reception of it and um one of the notes here is that it was actually generally well received within the catholic community well, and like the, i
0: said it was it was based on a on a book yeah that was i believe very much supported by the church again man it just hits too yeah. too close to home and not close to home in the sense of that but like it's just too familiar. It's too terrifying. It's your worst nightmare and you're watching it play out and you're just terrified the whole time it's going to happen to you and it just really yep. gets in the bones, man. So so that one makes the list. The last one I'll put on there is for so – it's The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And the reason I put this one on there is, yeah, it's got some jump scares and that kind of stuff. Uh, the graphics I don't think really hold up. I remember even when I watched it, it was kind of very video gamey, you know, whatever. Yeah. But the reason I put it on there is underrated is because it ends up being a shockingly decent courtroom drama. Uh, the premise of this one is it follow it's a priest on trial for the murder of a girl that uh, was possessed, and he performed the exorcism, and she died during that exorcism. So, and that kind of takes a backseat to the trial and, and and the process of that Laura Linney. I think she plays, like, the prosecutor or the defender, one of them or whatever. I've only seen it once. I remember it creeped me out enough. You know, it's hard to watch. I think it puts a lot of stress on, like, the whole 3 a.m. Like, if you wake up at 3 a.m., it's the devil or whatever. Yeah, and right. I, dude, and I have an insomnia sometimes. So I have I no problem getting to sleep, but I wake up at 3 a.m. And so I remember watching that, and it's it's very normal. It's a scientific thing. There's a whole reason why 3 a.m. It's this weird Internal clock thing, right? But anyways, I remember watching this movie and being like, oh my God, it's so real. So like I said, it'll creep you out. It gives you the jumps. But it ends up being this really interesting courtroom drama that you wouldn't expect in this type of movie. So I think, again, that one makes the list too. So each of them for a different reason. Each of them sort of triggers on a different note. But I think they're all worth mentioning. It's almost like, you know, it's so hard to pick one. but, But I think what we did is kind of came up with an interesting you know, comprehensive list of underrated movies. So if you're looking for something a little bit outside of the box or a little bit different, maybe one of these is worth giving a shot. I would not recommend Ghost Ship, however. I'm sorry, Ryan. If it's your jam man, I dig it, but it wasn't for me. And I'll never get that five dollars back. So and now I own it forever.
1: Anyway. Yeah, one day one day you'll be bored and you'll be like i don't remember watching this and <laughs> you'll watch it again and
0: that's a guarantee like <laughs> it's six months from now I'll be like have i seen this <laughs> and then uh, you know and it'll be maybe that's maybe that's my horror movie where i just read yeah. like groundhog day this horror movie because i just keep forgetting it right? <laughs> and i just have to relive this every day Un-
1: until you find it scary
0: <laughs> oh i will find that scary The next question isn't really a question. Last week, we did an episode on Disney's Onward. And out the gate, first of all, thank you all so much for listening to this podcast. I wouldn't have guessed in a million years that three people listen. And I'm getting texts, messages, emails of all kinds on all platforms just hounding me about our review of Onward. It seems like it's almost universally beloved as the greatest Disney Pixar movie of all time, which I find surprising. And so, you know, again, it's easy to get caught up in the details when we're doing these reviews. Overall, my stance is the same. I just believe that there are other movies that do what it's trying to do better. That does not mean it isn't enjoyable i can i can abs i face value for me it's I think you put it best, Tim. It's cute. It's Disney. It's Pixar. It looks great. It it'll give you the notes. It just doesn't hit them like it should for me. And so again, I, I just feel like my time would be better spent watching other things. That being said, I can see the appeal of this movie. I believe we said that at the end, that you know, I, I believe this will hit for some people and for most people. But you know, I'm comfortable with my rating. I, I'm standing firm. Tim, this is your opportunity to, to walk anything back that you want to walk back, my friend.
1: Uh, no, before I mean, the masses this...
0: come for you, right.
1: if uh, if if this wasn't all uh, audio only, you would see me uh, vehemently nodding my head um, in agreement. <laughs> I, I sort of had a feeling walking into this. Um, I think it was like the morning after we recorded this, I saw nothing but love on Facebook on some other like nothing even related to to me in any way. It just happened to pop up on somebody else's Facebook feed. And it was just a love fest over this movie. And I maintain the same thing. I, I, I wrote in my notes, like I maintain that it's cute and it's Pixar. So it's never going to be bad. I think at the time I said, you know, a bad day in Florida beats a good day anywhere else. It's it's like, it is that in a nutshell. And it just, like you said, it didn't hit the way that Coco or Inside Out had hit for me. And there's going to be people that it, that it is going to touch. And that's not surprising to me. But I think what people also overlook is that when you get into doing something like this, which is, you know, an exercise in dissecting. Yeah, at first blush, I liked it. Uh, I don't think you I don't think I was bullied into anything. It's just that when you are there to sit and think about it critically, it just falls flat. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, if if you're going to start pulling pieces apart, you know, it's like no, it's like an album or anything else on first blush. I really like that. But then as you sift through it for a while, you're like, eh, it just doesn't have staying power, it just doesn't stick with me. And when you can back that up by looking at the credits of the creative team, I don't think I can be in the wrong in that case. You know, if you were to be like, oh, no, this was literally, you know, everyone behind every major Disney Pixar movie ever. At, then maybe I'd walk this back and be like, okay, I'm being a bit of a a snob about it. But I just I, I feel like critically, when you're when you look at something like that, um, you have to pick apart the stuff that you're not gonna you're not going to do if you're just gonna watch it for fun. And again, it's that first movie that we have looked at in this vein of COVID tinted glasses, where in a normal march april may when this was in the movie theaters maybe it doesn't tug on people the way it is but right you know in this world where we're looking for anything good i think you could also latch on to something like this and i'm not saying that's wrong i think but you could you could latch on to something that feels good um that maybe wouldn't have had the same impact in brighter times Potentially, you know, yeah,
0: no, I mean, I completely agree. I can't stress enough. I love this feedback, this dialogue, this conversation is exactly what I want with this podcast to get your opinions on things and have this open dialogue about movies. That's why movies exist, that's why they fire me up. I get so passionate about it, and I'm never gonna hate on somebody else's passion for something. If anything, I love hearing why you like something that I I hate and uh, and I hope that you enjoy me razzing and and sort of you know venting about why I hate what you love and and that's just sort of how it is it's all in in good fun so I love that it's actually doing this and uh, it really it just fires me up man I super dig it it's so exciting yeah and I hope we keep absolutely.
1: getting it yeah it's I mean it's it's it really is in 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 a world where you know we could waste our breath on talking about you know other things as much as we want um i mean this is something that is meant to be critiqued for for fun for whatever you know we, we we've all spent countless hours in high school english classes doing just this with far less interesting materials so it's, it's
0: <laughs> so true i think that's it let's move on to the next section what yes. are we watching tim yeah. what are you Ooh, watching
1: yeah so i i decided uh this week uh to dive back into the haunting uh of hill house um watched it once god when it came out was almost two years ago
0: i mean that was back when we were still working together because we we went through this at the same time yeah you were a Um, bit behind if i remember it was our our friend steve had told us about it and steve and i plowed through it and then we were waiting on you
1: Yeah, I hit. I think I started it like right on Halloween-ish, like the week of Halloween. Right. And then my wife had very specific criteria for watching it. Um, It couldn't be too late at night. Couldn't be that close to bed. That sort of thing. So. Oh, that sounds like my wife's criteria for (laughs) other things. (laughs) So it's kind of it's kind of struggled to really. Too late. It's too close to bed.
0: I just took a shower. (laughs)
1: right yeah. it's not happy enough yeah so we um <laughs> we, we we kind of struggled to find some time to run into it um and then it was christmas and then it was like yeah this is not really feeling like my jam at christmas so <laughs> that's um,
0: right. oh that's right you did man you <laughs> went deep into christmas months
1: so it was like yeah so i think we hit like episode five which is um that's the turning point yeah, there's like a watershed moment in episode five. And then we took like a month and a half to finish the rest of it. Um, and going back and watching it again, there are things I wanted to pay attention to. And when you, if you've seen it, when you finish it, you, you kind of know some of those things that you want to pay attention to um, and just be like, oh, you know, what didn't I see the first time around? And I don't know if that's what's grabbing me this time. Uh, what is grabbing me is the whole modern day story, much so, much more so than the, the flashback story. The flashback story was where it was all about for me the first time through. That's where you see a lot of the ghosts and that's the active of haunting of the house. But a lot like it, like our discussion about that movie, the, watching where these kids ended up is so much more tragic the second time through. And I don't think it's as obvious the first time about how messed up all of the the kids are in this movie um, to the point that you're not surprised the second time through that they're just not well adjusted. I think some of them come off a little bit more adjusted than they than they were. Um, the first time through but I just the tragedy in that is so much scarier um, than the ghosts the second time around
0: I can see this as a future episode I know you and I have talked about it a bit so I wonder what that looks like they did greenlight season two which I'm assuming has been pushed with yeah. along with everything else uh, it's going to be based on a different book they're doing it like an anthology so I think it's uh based on Bly Manor um new cast that whole kind of thing maybe this is an episode when that one comes out or something like that i i just this is one that i don't i don't know how you feel about it now i would highly recommend this as a watch i think it's one of the best netflix produced pieces of television that they have
1: yeah absolutely if you haven't done it definitely do it I'm just a lot more creeped out by it this second time around. Oh, uh,
0: now I'm I, even more curious to yeah, revisit it. Yeah, I've,
1: just, I've it just, it's just parts of it make me uncomfortable now. Uh, and it's just so interesting, the the just the juxtaposition of everything. And it's still, again, I'm still trying to keep up on those things uh, about how, you know, the, the pieces that you missed the first time around. And I just finished that episode five again uh, before recording tonight. So mm. kind of at that moment um, where you could just take all of that back in and you're just like ah oh. and, and there's just still so many questions about pieces of it so i'm hoping hoping that gets clarified and then the other thing that i just keep coming back to and i'm sure this is out of pure boredom is a couple weeks ago i discovered this show live pd <gasps> where I, this show is uh, i it's, it's i mean it hits the chord for me because i think you know years after coming home from school flip on the tv what was on but cops all and, day every day yeah, cops. Yeah, right And it was just, you know, you watch these episodes of Cops. And I think this is this kind of fits right in there. The format is a little odd. You get used to it. You get mad sometimes when they cut away and they don't go back to a certain thing. Because for all intents and purposes, it is live. And they're live with these different precincts around the country. And they're cutting in and out of action and trying to fit in breaks. And sometimes the episode ends while they're on this interesting call. Like the other night, this episode ends where this dude is saying that this girl in McDonald's stole his dog and he punched her in the head. And she's like, I just met him five minutes ago. And then the episode was over and I'm like, boom, What happened to the dog? Like, there's just, you know, fascinating stuff like that. I can't explain it. Maybe it's just the fascination with making myself feel like I'm doing okay in life. And that
0: (laughs) it will do that for you.
1: You know uh, that uh, I'm not driving around with lots of meth and weed in my car because apparently everybody in this country just drives (laughs) around with bags of weed and bags of meth. How does
0: everyone, no matter who gets pulled over for anything on that show, they have all the meth. Like all of it.
1: This guy got pulled over in an episode yesterday. The cop pulled him over because he had a busted taillight. He's in California. He rolls down the window and the dude had, you know, like a Trader Joe's paper bag full of weed sitting on his front seat. Mm, And it was right. And the guy was like, you know, they're in California, so it's not technically illegal. But uh because it wasn't packaged right, they had to seize it. It was like five guys each going like five hundred dollars on it. So do the math on that and they seized it and he's like begging the copy's like, Can I just get an ounce of it? And then they cut to a similar scene in Texas where this girl has like <laughs> a, like, a drop <laughs> yeah right then they cut to texas and you got this this girl who's got a drop of cbd what she thought was cbd oil in her vape pen turns out to be tch oil and she's going to jail for a felony so it's just uh, it's fascinating wild. yeah it's it's fascinating uh it's horrifying but watching some of the current episodes where you see the cops out there doing their business with masks on and trying to police people and keep people safe that just adds a whole nother horrifying level to it it's easy it's just something to throw on in the background plus there's like five different versions of it there's like recap and most wanted and live and my wife doesn't quite understand it uh my fascination with it it fills a void for noise
0: sometimes <laughs> i i forget who told me about it somebody told me about it and so whatever channel it's on i don't get it i have youtube tv and it, it doesn't come in the package but if you go on youtube they have you know not necessarily full episodes but like full encounters and long compilations so i will just get lost in rabbit holes of that on youtube it's it's fun it's cops man if you liked cops it's a blast it just it's it's well done i think um but that's coming from the perspective of never seeing the episode itself so i don't get that frustration i'm just looking at the clips and stuff online yeah
1: yeah yeah it's on a and e like all day Friday and then like almost all of Saturday night. It makes me thankful for a lot of, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> things in my life.
0: It means you're so. not doing so bad. Um, exactly. So it's interesting that we both, maybe it was the, maybe it was the listener question, but we both kind of dabbled in a little bit of this horror genre, but yeah. uh, I ended up watching this movie called Apostle on netflix it stars dan stevens and michael sheen and there's a couple other recognizable people but i think those are kind of the two big names i'll just say this it was surprisingly decent it was surprisingly watchable it is in the vein of midsummer and the wicker man so it it's the wicker man but significantly better uh because that movie's trash it's midsummer but it makes a lot more sense. It's a little easier to digest, but it still has some of that weird quirkiness stuff that you don't quite understand. But it's essentially a story. Dan Stevens plays a guy whose uh, sister gets kidnapped and taken to this cult island. So he infiltrates. He's trying to find her while trying to navigate through Uh, this cult's dynamic and and figuring out sort of the truth behind it and then it obviously has a little bit of a twist ending that kind of stuff if you're into that stuff if if those types of movies have been ones you've checked out in the past i would definitely recommend this one i I thought it was easy to watch i thought it hit the right notes i thought it did a, a decent job i think the act was well done um and you know and again for a netflix original film it's it's up there uh if if midsummer and that kind of stuff isn't necessarily your jam then probably skip this one and and you're good to go. But yeah, free on Netflix. Uh, it was surprising. I was pleasantly surprised actually. It didn't make my underrated list. <laughs> 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 other than that, the other thing I watched I was so excited about this week was the uh, Parks and Rec special, the yeah. uh, the quarantine special they did on this past Thursday, uh, April 30th. Um so it was on ne- it was on NBC. And man, it was perfect. It was perfect. Exactly what you wanted it to be. Everyone came back. They even made the whole thing make sense. Outlandish as it, as some of the the reasons may have been for why all these people who have coupled up, so you have, uh, you know, Andy and April who are married and why aren't they in the same room? And why aren't Ben and Leslie in the same room? And why isn't, uh, you know, Chris and Anne in the same room? And so they had explanations for everything. Ron is exactly who you expect him to be. You know, just all the characters you love come back. It makes perfect sense. It's cute and it's fun. And it was just a nice moment to have during all of this. You know, again, if you if you DVR'd it or you can grab it on On Demand or whatever, it's absolutely worth a watch. And for a great cause, you know, donate if you can. They were matching, I think, up to 500,000 of donations to Feeding America. You know, so what better way to spend uh, 30 minutes and, and maybe spend a few bucks. So, um, yeah, it was a blast. I loved it.
1: Um, I do have to add one thing that I forgot, and I will say that they totally redeemed themselves. Um, I actually ended up watching this after we recorded last week. But the second SNL at home blew the first one out of the water. Oh, yeah, because you were a little bit down on it. Uh, It was it was not good. It like they had moments where you're like, okay, I see where you're going. But the rest of it was literally them just at home trying to do their best with whatever they could find. And it just didn't work. This second one, I don't know if they got found a way to get costumes or what, but they had another two weeks to work on it, and this one was just so much better. Uh, It was just it hit all of these better notes. It was filmed better. There were some really funny sketches. Um, One of them is from one of the featured uh, cast members, Chloe Fineman. She's new on the the season, Um, and. she did this this skit where uh, she is an Airbnb host whose guest is from uh, another country, uh, like one of the Scandinavian countries, and gets her guest gets stuck with her, and it, it's just the character she plays is hilarious. It was just light years better than the first one they did. So uh, I'm optimistic to see uh, if they if there's another one in the works or not. I, I I don't know off the top of my head, but this one was so much better, and it, it was much more in line uh, with a, a good episode of SNL. Um, so I definitely checked some of those skits out because those ones were, were pretty good.
0: That's awesome. All right, so we are going to take a very brief bake, break. Bake, break. Break. <laughs> they have all the meth, Tim. Um, <laughs> so we're going to take a brief break and play you a few notes of our delicious intro music, which will serve as your cue to come back and join us if all you're here for is our insights on true romance our listener request so we will be right back with that info thank you take it away my old school ipod time we got something to drink yep and now we're ready
1: yeah the
0: the review all right so uh again this is a listener request that we watch true romance from 1993 so as always first things first spoilers 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 spoiler alert um this movie came out in 1993 guys so if you haven't taken the time in the last 27 years to watch this movie
1: like me Had you never seen this? I had never seen it.
0: Oh my God, Tim.
1: And I am super, super delighted that I have now seen it.
0: I am so excited to have this episode now. I had no idea, dude.
1: Yeah, I kind of had, I honestly didn't think much of it. And uh, it came up on another call this week and I mentioned it. And a friend of mine that I was chatting with, he was like, wait a minute that's the Tarantino written one. And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, yeah, it's written by Tarantino and it's got X, Y, and Z in it. And I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Hold up. This totally changes the game for me on this. So uh, it totally makes sense of why this recommendation came in from who it did. Uh, My buddy, Eric, I totally understand. This definitely seems like a movie that would be in his wheelhouse. And I am thrilled that, uh, that I've now seen this movie. Um, It is, fascinating so
0: i remember uh, i was a teenager I don't exactly remember when but i i got into a hard tarantino kick and i even got like into the weeds like so there was a movie four rooms where he directed and wrote one of the um it's it's so it's it's four sort of vignettes within this this hotel and he had done one of them and so i remember having a conversation i'm pretty sure it was it was Rico. And he, uh, he was like, yeah, man, but what about True Romance? I'm like, True Romance? What's True ro- I, Dude, I thought I knew everything. And he's like, bro, Tarantino wrote True Romance. He just didn't direct it. And I was like, well, who directed it? And it was Tony Scott. And I'm like, Tony Scott? Because that was the flip side of my coin in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, Days of Thunder, Top Gun, Crimson Tide. Every movie I loved was Tony Scott. So of the Scott brothers, you got Tony Scott and Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott was your thinker. He was your deep dive. And Tony Scott was just to punch you in the face with exactly what you wanted, exactly when you wanted it and uh so i was i was in man i watched this i owned it you know i don't think i think it was one of those that somehow i ended up not having it anymore and it had been a long time since i had revisited this movie uh so when i saw this come through i was like yes we have to do this we'll watch anything you guys ask us to But, uh, but this was one that i was super excited to watch okay so again spoiler alerts and uh, where can you watch this? The great news is the director's cut is actually available right now for free on Amazon Prime. Uh, It's with ads, but uh, that's, that's provided to you via IMDB TV, which is super awesome. It's uncut, it's unedited, but it's just spliced with ads. So you can check that out for free right now, today, tomorrow, whenever, yesterday, doesn't matter. This one is fantastic what else okay so we talked about released in 93 directed by tony scott but written by quentin tarantino if i'm not mistaken i think this is actually one of the first if not the first screenplay he had ever written this one came out the year after reservoir dogs and the year before or two years before pulp fiction so this one's kind of sandwiched right in between his two you know the two that really got him off the charts um but again, he did not direct this one and he wrote this one first, which is interesting because you see a lot of him in it.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to me that he, from what I have seen, kind of had this and Reservoir Dogs like in his back pocket. And was kind of like, well, I can't do both. And so depending on what you see, some people say like he threw both of them at Tony Scott and was like, you pick the one that you want to do and I'll do the other. And then I read some other stuff that that might not necessarily might necessarily be accurate. But the fact that out the door, he had both of these scripts in his pocket and ready to go. And he was going to do either one. it just blows my mind.
0: And he had Pulp Fiction right there with it like right. this is his these are the three that came out boom 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 that yeah. Ascent, uh, he made him a household name like it's, yes this is this changed the course of filmmaking of cinema and obviously of his life and and yeah. the rest is history after this yeah yep. um so the budget was about twelve and a half million dollars and the worldwide gross was a little bit less about 12.3 so you know in terms of release it was it was a theater flop like this movie did not do well um, but it was critically well received out the gate and it's obviously had this massive cult following after theatrical release and so well deserved there is no one who isn't in this movie but it stars christian slater he's your male lead clarence patricia arquette is your female lead she plays alabama and then, then it's just a whole cast of characters. You got Dennis Hopper, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, Michael Rappaport, Saul Rubinek, James Gandolfini, Chris Penn, Tom Sizemore, Sam Jackson, Val Kilmer. I mean, the list goes on, people.
1: You, you have literally seen everyone in this movie somewhere else.
0: Yeah, fact.
1: And, and that is, and we'll get into it, but that is one of the fascinating things for me in this movie. I mean, that list you just rolled, rolled out, and you did like bronson pincho like you got yes. some Valkyrie love in this movie like i just literally as the the as it was rolling every name i was like what? james gandolfini like what it it is nuts it, it is you have literally seen everybody in this movie and then one of lee donowitz's bodyguards uh lee donowitz played by Saul rubinek is little john from from robin, robin hood men in tights. tights i mean yes. it is it is uh, you have seen everyone in this movie uh, somewhere else. It, it is unreal.
0: The second I saw him, I was like, oh, just drop him in like the tub. He can't swim. Yeah. <laughs> right,
1: right, so right.
0: <laughs> um, Okay, so quick synopsis. Uh, Basically, Clarence, our lead, is sent a call girl named Alabama for his birthday. His boss sends her, wants him to have a good time. Uh, They spend an evening together going to the movies, eating pie at a diner, and then, of course, knock in boots. So after the one night they spend together, they fall madly in love. They get married. Clarence goes to her pimp's house to get her clothes and other odds and ends, as you do ends up killing him and taking a suitcase, thinking it's full of her clothes. It's not. It's full of a whole mess of cocaine that the pimp named Drexel stole from the mob. Oh, by the way, he's played by Gary Oldman. And then uh, the two of them are now driving from Detroit to L.A. to try to sell this coke in one fell swoop so they can start their lives together. While, of course, evading the mob and the police, everyone's looking for them on and on and on we go, that's our plot. And while it sounds ridiculous, it is. It's also deliciously entertaining. Yeah. Yep. 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 (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's just jump in. Talking points. First of all, overall opinion. If you can't tell by now, I freaking love this movie. I mean... It has ever I loved it when I first saw it. I love it today. It is so much fun. The camp and the ridiculous outlandishness somehow makes sense and works. The way it's shot, like the grittiness of Detroit. And and it it looks exactly and feels exactly as you would expect and you want it to look and feel. I mean, there's so many reasons why. There's so many reasons why you should dislike this movie and somehow all of those reasons and so many more that you can't quite put your finger on are exactly the reasons why you love this movie. It is so hard to, I don't know, like our leads, it's impossible to hate them. As cheesy and corny and ridiculous as they are, these caricatures of people... You want so badly to despise them, but you can't. This movie, like the leads, like everything about it, is so freaking charismatic and so endearing and so engaging. It's like, why do you love this movie? I don't know. You'll just love it when you see it. And there's reasons why I think we'll get into them in a second, but hands down, I love this movie. And I think most people will, especially if you listen and love this podcast. So... There you go. That's my two cents. Let's just end it. We're done. Have a great one, done. guys. Yeah, we wrapped this up. Anyways. Alright, so that's my thoughts. Tim, what about you?
1: Um, I I think a lot of what you just said, I think, is going to color a lot of things that I feel. The way I've been approaching a lot of this is watching the movie a Saturday night, where we usually record a Sunday night. So, so trying to watch it like 24 hours, and then just kind of marinating from there. Let it sit, you know, Yeah. yeah. And then and then just kind of think about it in in my own terms and then do a little bit of research on it just to have have some ammo. But I find this movie absolutely fascinating for reasons outside of the storyline. Almost immediately, it's like things just get turned up to 11. There's no gradual like introduction into this movie. Things are just like, we're going, this is happening, and you've got to be okay with it. And we'll get to it. I, I struggled with that for a little while, but after digesting... Um, and hearing some of your thoughts. I think I can come around to that. But some of the other fascinating stuff is just everything about this production and everything about this movie. You were looking at Hollywood at a nexus here. You have, mm-hmm. you have actors at the prime of their career towards the end of their career when you with with, with hopper and, and christopher walken and then you had this next wave of stars with brad Pitt, Pitt and, and james gandolfini still three years away from the sopranos and even just the handoff between uh, scott and tarantino it's just like it's like this magical passing of the baton movie where you're just seeing this changing of the guard happening within this movie and and you probably don't notice it at the time right because you don't know what brad pitt's gonna end up doing or what james gandolfini's gonna end up doing or even what tarantino's gonna do but watching it now you're like holy crap what is happening at this in in this movie is outstandingly unique i don't know that you see uh, have seen something like this where it's just greatness being handed off to greatness it's fascinating um and I think just that just puts this in another echelon for appreciation because it's just it's one era of Hollywood handing off to another era of Hollywood, and even to storyline, it's this blending of old Hollywood into new Hollywood to some degree. It, it, it's just it, it's just as an entity it is super fascinating and uh so much fun i
0: completely agree i think that segues well into just sort of jumping into some general thoughts and then like always we'll talk about the bad and then some of the really big highlights and then we'll kind of wrap this up so like we said a hundred times this movie is written by tarantino directed by tony scott and i think this is exactly Reason number one why this movie sits so high on my list. This movie stands apart so much from Tarantino's other canon because I feel like it's the perfect marriage between director and writer and each one of them in their proper place. A lot of people say this, and I do agree to a point, this movie very much feels like a Tarantino movie. It's, as the writer, you very much hear his voice, you see it play out on camera, it just jumps from page to screen, His influence is so evident and so clearly needed. He's a master. There are so few people who can do dialogue the way Tarantino does and write a character the way he does and do that development of that character the way that he does. And and you kind of see that here and you definitely need that here. That being said, I think as brilliant as he is, and you will never hear me say that he does not belong on anybody's list of greatest writers and directors of all time. Uh, Because he absolutely does. I think very highly of him. That being said, I genuinely believe he's a far more gifted writer than he is a director. And I think him directing his movies can sometimes be his downfall and the downfall of a movie his quirkiness and jitteriness and all this stuff while it leads to really great characters I don't think always leads to great movies I think his his scores his music are overpowering and distracting from stories more often than not I think that his just sort. Of, while I think his time jumping is brilliant and out of the box and it just changed the game in terms of screenwriting that is a screenwriting thing not a directing choice and so again you know his sort of ability to visually put that movie on the screen i'm not saying he's not up there with the best because he is i just don't think that's necessarily his strength all that being said i i think that him handing this off to tony scott and tony scott's energy and just the, what he brings to the table as a director in action movies and dramas, right? I mean, Crimson Tide is this perfect blend of action and drama and tension building and character development. He's the perfect director to take what Quentin Tarantino has written and show it to me on the screen. And, and so, again, I just think it's incredible... You also touched on this a little bit in terms of what this what this movie means for for views and and takes on Hollywood and its actors. Like you see a lot of Tarantino in this, and then there's this incredible back and forth between him and Lee, the character so Clarence and Lee, uh, the two characters in the movie, talking about. You know, uh, you know, Oscar-contending movies, and this it's just this monologue that you can just, it's just dripping with Tarantino, which is super ironic, considering how many Oscars Tarantino and his movies and his actors right. have won, but, you know, that being said, um, again, it's just, it, top to bottom, it's just this beautiful marriage, A- and you get Tony Scott bringing in Hans Zimmer, who yeah. has worked with him on literally everything that he's directed since you know, days of thunder. I think, I think he didn't work on top gun. And so you get this more muted score. I think it plays up things a little bit better, but it's certainly not distracting. Like some of Tarantino's other works.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's really interesting that you definitely hundred percent. You feel all of that underneath this in every, all the writing. Um, I did wonder a lot what a Tarantino directed version of this looks like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're talking about the score and everything, and how d- driven a lot of Tarantino movies are by the pop music that are in in his movies. I mean, Pulp Fiction's got some iconic scenes with Chuck Berry's uh, "Never Can Tell," I mean, not getting the Elvis rights in this movie. Um, there, there, there's some some stuff to be said about that that kind of subplot to this. I wonder what this would have looked like with some of that pop culture music in it. But you're right. That's what inherently would make this more of a Tarantino film, right. and where that is dialed back, um, initially gets a little weird. The, the score when it opens, this pan the panpipes that you hear, this panpipe medley that. Oh yes. It is so weird at first to me, and it doesn't fit this overview of you're seeing of Detroit all dirty and gritty, right? And you've got this beautiful pan flute playing music, and I was like, what is happening? This is weird. This because doesn't this feel is, right. It's the story of these diamonds in the rough, man and totally by the end of the movie you're like oh this is the pretty music this is when you know everything (laughs) is okay this is the moments where we're safe and we're with our you know our couple and they've you know these are the safe tender moments and by the end of the movie that music is is consoling and it just means everything is going to be okay and so it is interesting when you watch this with a Pulp Fiction in the back of your brain, it's like, well, where where would Tarantino have gone with this? And it it's not there. It, and I don't think it needed to be. And I think those moments that are dialed back um, are are important, that they're not over Tarantino. But it is fascinating, too, that he says this is his most autobiographical movie. That makes sense. Yeah, he is Clarence. And it's fascinating, too, because I was like, well, what part of this is his most autobiographical? Because like, <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? But he is. He is Clarence, and there are times in this movie where I was like, I can see tarantino in this character like if you know especially in his cameo in pulp fiction you're like i can see him in this character like the jitteriness that you talk about i can see that in clarence um and then he also talks about seeing himself in the character of michael rapaport uh, of being a young actor and trying to he, get parts oh, and yes so it's the, all of that is just super interesting to see the different characters that he has put himself in Um, And that he is so much a part of this movie, but what ends up making this work even better is that he's not a part of this movie, right? So it's that juxtaposition.
0: So, and again, it is... There are a few exceptions. I I think Tarantino's cameo in Pulp Fiction is one of the best cameos ever. Um, I think Tarantino in Dust Till Dawn is he i think he's great in that as much as he can be but again he didn't direct that robert rodriguez Mm -hmm. did so tarantino taking direction from somebody else can be really powerful again with the exception of pulp fiction he did that himself tarantino his cameos in his other movies i'm not a huge fan of And, and i'm and i'm I'm one who likes seeing the director or the writer in the movie from time to time. You know, I find that clever. As as, as long as you can do it well. So, but what's awesome about it is that he's not on screen yet you watch him for the whole two hours and one minute. And it's the perfect way to have him. And you're absolutely right. You know, you see, and you see both sides of him. You see the brains and the writer, and 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 sort of what made the man. And then you also see the struggling actor and whatever. But everyone kind of finds success in their own ways. And so this is, it's incredible. It's incredibly well done. And and it's a huge, it's a huge, huge testament to his writing ability. And uh, and it makes it all the more powerful. Because you can see him in it. Hans Zimmer and his score. And you were talking about the the pipes. Yeah. He has this amazing talent for creating these theme songs for your characters and for each person. We open up with Christian Slater and Clarence. uh, Christian Slater as Clarence. Sitting in this dingy, gross bar. Talking to what I would assume is another lady of the night. And... She is just gross looking, and it's just like it's so down. But he is so upbeat. He's so positive. He's so loving, right? Like, or, or rather, like endearing. And and so he's just completely out of sort. In that he just he's just a ro- a rose in crap. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Alabama is the exact same, especially when we. We go to her pimp Drexel's house with Clarence and all the other women in there are just run down and nasty and he's gross and the house is crazy. But here she is, this chipper, upbeat, like giggling. Nothing gets her down. We know she's only been at it for about four days, but you would feel like those four days would have destroyed anybody else. Like all of their light would be gone. And she is just, you cannot snuff her out. And so that little pan flute thing is perfect when I'm looking at this grunginess but I'm I'm supposed to be following them and they're my little bunnies kind of bringing me through the poo.
1: I think that's an absolute great way to describe them and makes me really appreciate that that scoring even more because That's maybe. Cuz part of it what was really bothering me for a while is that Clarence and Alabama just go with it. They just get in so deep, so quick. And like you said, she's been on this job for four days and she has no qualms about her newly married husband of four hours going out and Killing her old pimp. She's like, Yeah, sure, that's even sexier now that you've done that. She
0: and you know Yeah, she looks upset and then she says, That's the most romantic thing anyone's ever done. And just starts and
1: macking him. Right. And Clarence's thought is like, Yeah, I'm gonna go kill this guy because my wife for four hours was pimped out for him by four days. Like, it's just this hyper innocence of them is so out of place that it feels so weird. You're like, did I miss something? How are we just suddenly okay with Clarence just off in this guy? Like, is is there some secret past of his that we don't know about that he's just going to go off and murder? Like, that's it. Got to murder this guy. And really threw me for, uh, uh, for a while, even her coming out to him at the beginning. It's like, I have to tell you, we didn't meet by chance. I was paid to spend the night with you. And he was like, yeah, that's cool. I figured as much. Yeah, he was like, just, "I had a blast." Yeah, thanks. Just rolls with it, and that just sets up everything else that comes after it because nothing is on off the table for the rest of this movie. You cannot predict the rest of this movie because the characters don't react any single way that you expect a normal person to act. Yep. And it is just tied all back to that music because. If you watch their actions with that music playing in their heads, everything makes more sense to their actions. They're just rolling with it because they are happy-go-lucky. They are in love with each other, and the world makes perfect sense to them. Everything they're doing falls in line after that.
0: Let's not get it twisted. These people, and it's, again, it just speaks highly to the writing, to the score, to the direction, to everything – our two leads are losers. They oh, yeah. are trashy. But the music and the way that they play these the acting. My god, the acting. This is Christian Slater at his Best. You will not find him better. He's not better later. He's not better before. This is the height of Christian Slater, with the exception maybe of Interview with the Vampire, in which he had about 10 seconds of screen time. That's the only other way you want Christian Slater in your life. And so but in this movie he's perfection don't get it twisted they are garbage they are losers yeah. they slaughter people he murders two people at the pimp house he which and we do get a little bit of exposition right when the dad the former cop they do talk to De- dennis hopper plays his father and they talk to him and he's like oh the more i talked to my buddies this guy was awful like it's a good thing you killed him so that's supposed to make us feel a little bit better but Um, And Alabama kills a mobster and that kind of so, uh, you know, you're kind of going through the motions and you're like, okay these people, they're killing bad people. Right. We can justify that in our minds. But then Alabama straight up murders a cop, you know, and say what you will. But the truth is, these people are selling tons and tons of coke to a bunch of coke head movie producers. The cops are just doing their job. And, yeah, the cops come in blasting, but everything sort of jumps off and it makes sense. And there's mobsters there. And then she straight up murders a cop, but we don't care. We're like, no. we love you, Alabama, because her the way she acts and the way or the you know the way Patricia Arquette acts this role, and and the way the music plays and everything else, it just makes everything okay. This movie yeah. fires on all cylinders, the, and and that's exactly kind of what I was saying is. There's so many reasons why you shouldn't like it, or why you shouldn't like these characters, but yeah. something triggers and you do. And, and at the end, honestly, this movie ends and you're like, "What just happened? Like, why do I love this so much?" And, and it's it's crazy. Like, okay. All that being said, there is some bad. Let's talk a little sure. bit about the bad. Okay, sure. I have a few notes here. Number one. And it was difficult, but here's a, here's one. So it's dated, yes, right? When you watch this movie, it very much feels like an early 90s movie. It's super yeah. campy. There's not much you can do about the former. But what's funny, and this kind of speaks again to, to sort of how everything's okay, the campiness and, and all that, it just makes sense. Right. These two characters, you talked a bit about how they're just all in that first scene. Right. So they they go on their little date. They have sex. He wakes up. She's not there. You fully expect she's gone. Whatever. She's just crawled out the fire escape. She's hanging out and just professes her love for him. They have been together for maybe six hours, seven hours. Mm-hmm. Right. They watched a couple movies. They had some pie. They had some sex. Oh, and by the way, Tim, what would you think of that belly licking?
1: Uh, right i uh, off the bat i was like "Huh, that there's your cinemax uh that's my there's your Skinemax right there that was uh that was some uh some fancy belly licking going on but what i
0: dug about it was it wasn't even pretending to be other things she was just straight up licking his belly right Right. and as a bigger guy i'm like okay i've never had that before maybe i'll I'll listen (laughs) to my belly okay so um Anyways, so it's not, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's dated, it's campy, whatever, but the campy makes sense. It ends up being a plus. The dated, not much you can do about that. Here, here's something I, I didn't really dig. You see a lot of characters kind of come and go. Um, you, kind of a lot of day work, right? Lots of cameos and whatnot. And you, you get that primarily in two. One of them is a huge win. One of them is a big loss. The win is Brad Pitt. We'll talk about that in a second.
1: Amazing. <laughs>
0: the loss is christopher walken right so there is a critically renowned scene it's even got a name it's called the sicilian scene and this is a huge dialogue slash monologue um, by dennis hopper between him and christopher walken so dennis hopper gives this whole speech to christopher walken christopher walken plays sort of the number two of this mob family he's like the consigliere or like the i forget what he calls himself but he's kind of the the right hand right And uh, of this mob boss. So he comes in flanked with all his little mobster cronies. And they're pressing Dennis Hopper for information about where his son Clarence has gone with their coke. And he's trying to be intimidating, trying to be threatening. Dennis Hopper's not budging. And then he gives this whole speech about where Sicilians come from. So a couple of cons for this one. The first, an easy one, not not with the scene. The scene is fantastic. The one con with this scene, however, though, is what the serious hell is up with Quentin Tarantino and the N-bomb, dude. Like, <laughs> he feet and the N-word are the two things he loves on Earth more than anything else. And he wants Absolutely. to show you as many toes as he can, and he wants to drop the N-word as much as he possibly can. And like, Django did not bother me. Until he's on screen as like that Australian Kiwi, just in an awful accent, first of all. Like, why are you doing an accent? And second of all, just so he can drop N-bombs. Like in Pulp right. Fiction, it kind of makes sense a little bit. But again, you're like, what is happening here, bro? And so again, in this scene, Dennis Hopper is Quentin Tarantino dropping N-bombs. Um, that it's, it's starting to, it just grates on me. I really don't yeah. like it. Like ow. I had,
1: I had, yes, it was a beautiful day in the DMV area. I had all the doors and windows open throughout the day, throughout the night. And I had this actually piped through Bluetooth to my speakers leveled, uh, that are on a couple different levels of the house uh-huh. and sitting in the basement, watching this, forgetting that the windows and uh, doors are open upstairs and cut to the scene. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you should have oh! known better. <laughs> I know my neighbors can hear this. This is fun. Um, But while simultaneously thinking throughout this movie, I wonder where the feet shots would have been. That's (laughs) right.
0: Dude. (laughs) Yes. If he directs this, you're looking at someone's, I mean, clearly Patricia Arquette. She's like our, our only female that we get. Right. 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 So she's going to be tiptoeing around barefoot or she's going to stick her toes in his face or something's (laughs) going to happen. Right. Um, Okay, so but the point I really want to make with this Sicilian scene is it's, it's masterfully done. And you get yeah. Christopher Walken, and he sets himself up. He goes through the trouble of coming to this trailer park to interview Dennis uh. Hopper. They find out where the coke is. And so in the third act, the mobsters show up at the drug deal in the hotel, but Christopher yep. Walken is noticeably absent. So yeah. in the third act crescendo, you have no Christopher Walk. Why wouldn't he be there? Why is he not there? Why is he not there to oversee this coming to an end? Why isn't he shot to pieces? If he's not there and not shot to pieces, why isn't he still chasing them to Mexico? How does it suddenly end and they get away unless all the mobsters are dead? So I just yeah. don't understand. And it's clearly that he was just there for one day and they just didn't shoot yeah. both scenes.
1: I think it I think you could have made it work a little bit cleaner. um you know, watch having watched the entirety of the sopranos, you there are not that many instances where I feel like Tony gets his hands dirty on official business, right um, he the times that he gets involved in things are maybe slightly more personal than they are business related. Um, So I could see you playing that off as you're not going to send the second in command who they refer to. They do refer to him as Don, but again, he's not the head of the family. Yeah. Yeah. I can see you. I can see you playing that off that this man is not going to travel from Detroit to LA to, to do the dirty work. Right. Uh, but I think there are lines in the third act that are confusing. When Virgil, played by uh, James Gandolfini, shows up, he's yelling at Alabama the whole time saying, Where's my dope? He's like, It's, but it's not yours. Right. It's like, it's, so it was almost like, Did they put him as a stand in? And I don't see Christopher Walking doing that whole scene with with James Gandolfini and Patricia Arquette because that scene is just brutal and he just they both are destroyed I mean he ends up being killed but she beats the crap out of him and he beats the crap out of her and I don't see Christopher Walken playing that part in 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 that scene but it does sort of highlight what you're saying that he he's set up brilliantly to be this 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 really kind of head character and then he is missing but again i think you could have done that better in a way that it made sense but he's definitely missing and i think the other one for me which was odd and disappointing was the other one who got full billing off the top was samuel jackson and i was like oh samuel L. jackson's in this movie he is in this movie for 10 seconds maybe 10 seconds maybe yep and you're like oh he's playing a cool kind of character and dead gone and it was like he didn't get a and or like an uncredited cameo like this isn't you know this isn't coming to america samuel l jackson like this is you know early 90s samuel l jackson and he is in this movie for 10 seconds
0: yep nope i absolutely agree and i do agree with you they should have done this better and it's you know and i guess why does he go get his hands dirty once and then he wouldn't do it again it does set up an interesting dynamic james gandolfini has a great interaction with patricia arquette and and with that whole scene and her overpowering him if there's two people there that plays out very differently But maybe you have a Pulp Fiction thing. Maybe Christopher Walken comes in later to see what's going on and Christian Slater's already come in and caps him or something. I mean, I don't know what happens. Or maybe he just sends James Gandolfini, who doesn't come back, and then they figure out where they are. And then they, you know, because he doesn't come back, he has to show up again at the hotel and he gets killed. But it's just, it's this glaring hole in, in the story where... He's got to be in the end. We either have to see him die or he wins because why would they just stop? It's like Mexico's out of our reach. That seems, it seemed really, really dumb. Now, the other thing is that they're after the Coke. The Coke is there. The Coke gets seized. Maybe they think everybody's dead because our leads leave with the money, the producer's money, not mob money or anybody else's money. So maybe that's why. But at that point, when you've killed all these people, like even if it's not about the coke, you got to believe the mob's coming just for blood, right? Like I don't don't know. Um, So that 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 was a weak point for me when he just doesn't show up again. Uh, The next is the mentor. So Val Kilmer plays a character called the mentor, and this is troublesome for two reasons. You tapped on one, Tim. They don't have the rights to Elvis, and they don't have the rights to his music, and so. Val Kilmer obviously plays Elvis. He talks like him. He's in this gold onesie. You know, the whole deal. You don't see his face. You only see certain things. And he's called the mentor. And he's a manifestation of Clarence's subconscious that visits him in bathrooms and tells him to go kill pimps and and do other things. This is a part of the story I don't like. I feel like... It's never really explained. It comes in twice at random and it just feels out of sorts. So that is yeah. a huge part. I don't like.
1: Yeah. It's, we open the movie in that dive bar. Where we're talking to this vaguely Marilyn Monroe esque possible lady of the night, as you, as you mentioned. Right. And he, he Clarence is waxing poetic about the King and It plays it up like Elvis is going to have more of an impact on this story And that's where I think I'm coming from, where I'm like, well, it would have been interesting to see. I know they wanted to use one of his songs in the opening credits and things like that. So would that have meant something more? There needed to be more of it, I guess, or you just don't do it. That's
0: exactly what I was going to say exactly yeah. right. we've seen it done i mean dexter is visited by the ghost of his father and, and yeah. sort of it, it kind of keeps him on his path there's a there's a great movie a lot of people don't like it i i liked it a lot it's kevin costner it's called mr brooks where he plays a serial killer and it's john william hurt i, I don't remember so, the person who kind of plays his subconscious visits him throughout the movie people are visited by these manifestations throughout the movie and that's exactly why this is off-putting because either elvis talks him through or sorry the mentor talks him through every step of this process we see him in the backseat of the car we see him helping him make the decision there's a moment where he's like uh, he gets in the elevator with um. Oh
1: yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, Bronson Pinchot. Bronson,
0: yeah. yeah. So he uh, so he gets in the elevator with him, and he he pulls out this gun, and he starts just berating him to be like, oh, I had to be sure that it wasn't a setup. Why isn't there a scene of walking in like Elvis saying, "Hey, don't you think he might be setting us up or something?" Right, like if we either need more of it of this this manifestation influencing every decision he's making during this process or we need to see none of it because honestly the little glimmer at the beginning and the little glimmer at the end just don't make sense and it's confusing and it sets up this question about our lead or is he crazy like i don't understand and so it, it ends up being another huge hole that is is difficult to deal with but at the same time it's minor enough that you just kind of say that sucks that didn't work you didn't do that well and it doesn't ruin the movie but it, this is one that should have ended up on the cutting room floor if you didn't shoot more so
1: yeah and Alabama is obsessed with how cool Clarence is right she's yeah, like so at the end cool. she's like oh you're, you're so, so cool, cool. Yeah. He's a he's a nerd, like for all intents and purposes, that worked at a comic book shop. Like, don't you think
0: there's the nothing more that Quentin Tarantino wanted than right. to have some smoking hot girl tell him how cool he is?
1: Yes, right. as long as she had good feet. Oh, she got to have the best but, feet, Tim. But so you know, I I think you're you're absolutely right. A few more scenes of exposition on that would have so, would have helped me. Been like see him make that transition from you know working at the comic book shop for four years to suddenly brokering this mastermind drug deal and you know rubbing elbows with hollywood elite within a 24-hour period it's like if you see more of that mentoring him him into this cool persona you're like all right i can see like you know this this delusion or this this devolvement or evolvement into involvement's a new word i guess um <laughs> it, it, this evolution into <laughs> um, into the <laughs> I love it. Um, you know into this cool character um i think would have done a lot but i think uh, yeah I, I think you're right cutting room uh floor for for those two scenes and i it, you wouldn't have lost anything no
0: absolutely and especially with this idea right Like, if that's his goal i mean what better that we see him mentoring him through we see him a little less the need for him is less and then at the end when she thinks he's so cool then elvis can go you don't need him anymore now now he has someone in real life and he doesn't need that whole thing right so it's this whole dynamic that should be there and isn't and therefore it just shouldn't be there at all um yeah okay the last thing – well, the last two quick things is, <laughs> number one, the kiss between Dennis Hopper and Patricia Arquette after they meet for the first time is awful. I hated everything about it. There's even – a so Christian Slater's talking to his dad, and he's like, oh, she's such a peach. She even tastes like peaches. And he's like, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be married, blah, blah, blah. Then when Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette are leaving the trailer, she goes to kiss her father-in-law goodbye – and just straight open mouth tongue licks him. And he just and he's like, mmm. And then Christian Slater's reaction is like, hey, guys, cut that out, you guys. And so she gets in the car. They drive away. And his line is, ooh, she really does taste like peaches. And, sir, that is capital G-R-O-S-S gross. It is so gross. I almost threw up in my mouth. Awful. Absolutely awful scene.
1: A lot of that just plays into some of the things I said before, where everything that happens is unexpected and the opposite of what I expect to happen and what these characters to do. You know, when they show up, um, you know, Dennis Hopper is like, you haven't been I haven't seen, you know, hiding her hair of you in three years. And you show up at eight o'clock in the morning. And, you know, what's the deal? And that scene ends with him being like, "Oh, yeah, you killed a guy. Yeah, he, probably for the best. I'm totally cool with it." Like, <laughs> the whole thing is just like he's mad at him for not keeping in touch, but he's totally chill that he killed this this drug dealer. No biggie. We'll move on. Right. Um, and. And peaches. then I'm going to tongue oh.
0: bath your wife <laughs> oh, God. and tell you how delicious she is. Okay, the last thing I don't like is Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn cast in yes. the role of these narc cops. They feel out of place. They feel super gross. It's kind of whatever, which I guess, I don't know, it makes sense. It's also super hilarious and laughable that they're legitimately narcotics detectives. Um, right. and, and obviously not funny on purpose. But every moment that I saw them on screen, I found that to be painful uh i would have rather had anybody just fill it with no names you know i i I just i i did not enjoy them in this movie
1: but whatever yeah that that goes sort of back to a thought that we had in it where you have funny actors available to you and you realize like oh we need them to be kind of goofy and it just it just uh, i wasn't really sad when when penn Got it. This is kind of like, thank We're God. Well, neither one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, it's like, this is for my partner. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm kind of rooting for the mobsters here because y- y'all are <laughs> And terrible. apparently Patricia
0: Arquette. She's the <laughs> yeah, one that right. kills him. Um. <laughs> all right. So the good. We'll try to tear through this as, as quickly as we can. But man, yeah. so much here to dive into. There's so much good. Number one, Gary Oldman. He is an absolute movie stealer. His portrayal of Drexel the pimp was awesome to watch. Yep. And I was I was genuinely sad that he eats it so early. But at least yeah. we get some really great time with him. This man is unlike any other actor. He is a freaking chameleon. He... Is unrecognized when you see him in this movie, he is unrecognizable. And when it, when you, I mean, you see it pretty much right away, but at the same time, you're like, this is Gary Oldman. This is yeah. the greatest actor of our time. Gary Oldman playing this role, it's insane. I loved everything about
1: it. And Alabama's quote about him just perfectly sums it up. Um, Clarence asks, is he black? And she goes, he thinks he, he is. He thinks he is, yes. And he was just brilliant. Everything about swinging that lamp back and forth. What was the point in swinging the lamp back and forth? But it was just, you couldn't take your eyes off of it. You're like, yes. why is, what is the, the dead eye? Uh, the Everything. Everything about his character was brilliant yep. and i loved him
0: yep no he <laughs> loved is him. he's the best part arguably the best part of this movie um, i agree okay uh we already talked that this is christian slater at his absolute best his tics his quirks and everything that make him usually hard to watch work really well for him in this it's a testament to how perfectly this movie is cast because you fully much by full tilt into his charm his innocence and that's what carries you through the camp and ridiculousness of this movie we talked a little bit already about the juxtaposition between the cinematography the music and these characters um and it's perfectly done you could say the exact same thing about patricia arquette as alabama tony scott got the absolute best out of his two leads And this kind of goes back to my first point that I'm not sure that Quentin Tarantino could have gotten this performance out of those two actors. I think Quentin Tarantino is incredible at getting top-level performance out of people. But I think it's very specific people. I think it's true with DiCaprio. I think it's true with Brad Pitt. I think it's true with uh, Christoph Waltz, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there's certain people I think work very well with him. I'm not positive that these two actors are are those people. There's actually, there's a really interesting scene. So we talked a little bit about Patricia Arquette, James Gandolfini scene. Yeah. Uh, She talked in an interview years ago that I guess she was struggling to get that scene right. So she was, I mean, it's it's an incredible scene. She is hysterically laughing. She's absolutely terrified. She's totally exhausted. She's beat to smithereens. She wrecks him. Like it's, a lot happens in this scene. And I guess Tony Scott walks up to her and says, do you need me to help you? And she's like, yes. And he just straight cold clocks her across the face. And she just yep. starts crying and whatever, and apparently it's what she needed to get through and and capture this scene. I can't imagine Tarantino getting. Away. I mean, we actually and we've seen Uma Thurman talks about this. Tarantino pushes people to a brink, right? Like most good directors do in the right situation, but Uma Thurman struggled to work with him. And in this, there's like the famous car crash thing that happened in Kill Bill and, and things like that. I don't see him as the director getting all of this out of these two, the way that Tony Scott was able to do it. I'm not saying the right thing to do is to slap a woman in the face. I just think, again, it speaks to this perfect dynamic of everyone in their right role. Um, I just don't think this is the same movie and the same performance from those two with Tarantino at the helm.
1: And apparently... When in retrospect, when Tarantino commented about this particular scene, uh, apparently it happens again in filming um, that Patricia Arquette actually asks Tony Scott to to hit her because it was so effective Like mm-hmm. later on. She asks for it again. And, and Tarantino's mentioning this. And I think this was a couple of years ago. He, he was kind of saying exactly what you said. Like Tony could get away with it because of who he was as a person. And that you knew it wasn't anything malicious. He, right. And I think fully admitting that he's like, I couldn't do that without a lawsuit. He's like, but you knew he was just such a kind person. I think it was the words that Tarantino used that like, it wasn't coming from anywhere else other than to try and help his actress, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's fascinating. It, absolutely fascinating. It, I mean,
0: you I, can you imagine now? I mean, yeah, it's no, absolutely no. tragic that we lost Tony Scott to, to, that just horrible, horrible disease that is mental health, uh, disease. Yeah. But anyways, but the not to 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 linger on that. Uh, but it, he's just he was so incredible. But can you imagine that happening now? Like he would be no, just no. it would be over for him. It's game yep. over. Okay.
1: The next, I, I think. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. The one, the last thing I want to say about that, that, that part, that, that scene, um, just that, that is another underscore of that nexus that I was talking about. You, you see these flashes in James Gandolfini of what will eventually be, be Tony Soprano. Yeah. So I had to look. I had to look into it and see how much that played into him getting cast. And not much comes up. In, in fact, a lot of it kind of seems to be the other way around. The article that I read was like, you know, did Tony Scott invent? Tony Soprano Interesting. and they and the article was kind of like nah but you you can't help but notice it I mean it's there for somebody who just loves the Sopranos just watching that is kind of like ooh, it's like you know deleted scenes or you know bonus tracks or something like that um but it's just again it's that that crossover that's happening in this movie it's it's a glimpse of what is to come from an actor who's just coming up and coming off of the theater scene and into movies with this role so um, there's another one we'll talk about in a few minutes with Brad Pitt but I I thought that was fascinating to see kind of that pre-Tony Soprano James Gandolfini in that role.
0: He was a real treat to watch in this, actually. He was awesome. So the next thing, we talked about this a bit, the Sicilian scene. Dennis Hopper, like I said, gives this monologue and this back and forth between him and Christopher Walken. But I just wanted to say one more thing that I am not a Dennis Hopper fan. And I know that I'm probably in the minority with that, but just Waterworld still sits way too heavy in my memories. And, and just there's a lot of things. I I think he's a major overactor or was, unfortunately. But um, in this and in this movie, we already talked about ways that he just full Dennis Hoppered me and made me feel super gross. But <laughs> uh, but this scene is different. This and again, we see this movie pulling. The best out of everybody in it. And Dennis Hopper's acting in this scene is incredible, to say the least. But something that really hits me, he gives this speech, right, where he's just tearing apart uh, Christopher Walken's character, giving this history about where his people have come from. At the end of the speech, his face, I mean, this really hit me when I was watching it. He's he's fully into it. He's kind of laughing. Christopher Walken's laughing as he just insults this man right to his face. As soon as he's done, and, and there's this confidence going into the monologue. He asks for the cigarette, and he's smoking it so cool as he starts to just tear into him. As soon as the story is over, his face just drops. As now he realizes, my time is now over. I've said all I have to say they're not going to let me say anything else. And now I die and he knows it. And it's this, this look of resignation, but also fear and sadness. And, and like, he just got reunited with his kid and, and it's so much goes into this face. And I was like, good God,
1: are you actually a good actor? Like it was otherworldly. Uh, It just, he knew he wasn't getting out of that. He was going to die. We knew that they were not letting, they weren't going to roll up there as deep as they did and, and walk out of there um, with this guy. I mean, he lied to them off the bat. He knows Christopher Walken knows he's been lied to this. He's not leaving. He's not leaving this trailer and he knows he can't fight them. He's not going to fight these four or five guys. So he gives it his best shot with his tongue, and you're right. The moment he is done, he is done, and he's got nothing else to say. He is spent. He has left it all right there, and there's nothing more he can do. But he got in one last parting jab, the best way that he could, and that and was the it.
0: only way that he could. Yep, you're absolutely only way right. that he could. Yep, yep. Um, okay, last thing. Brad Pitt as Floyd, Michael Rapaport's pothead <laughs> of a roommate. First of all, is Brad Pitt even acting in this movie? Like, I feel like this is Brad Pitt. Like, Brad Pitt showed up as Brad Pitt and was like, film me, bro. (laughs) And it was magic to watch. He is a scene stealer. And he's giving all the mobsters all the information. He lives through all of it because he's just so dumb and innocent you know he's and so stoned so blazed so james gandolfini comes to the apartment looking for clarence and comes across floyd he's like are they here do you know where they are oh yeah man they live they're at this hotel how do you know he's like because they said they were leaving and going to this hotel <laughs> and then <laughs> and there's a scene where all the mobsters come back which again you're missing christopher walken it makes no sense but all the mobsters come back still looking for him. And now they're at a different hotel. And he's he's made a bong out of a honey bear. It's so great. <laughs> and when he's like, Hey, yeah, man, you guys want to hit this bong? And he's just holding this, this honey bear, plastic honey bear
1: bottle. It's so good. And he's desperately trying to give them uh, directions. They're like, well, how do we get to the ambassador? And he's like, uh, you just... Like yeah, down just drive down a ways until you make a a left, and like you can tell that somewhere in his brain there is an urgency because he somewhere deep down understands that these these guys aren't messing around, right. and he is just tripping all over his stone self to try and get them out, but he can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the next the, the last point about this kind of interesting juxtaposition in this movie is. Judd Apatow cites this as the whole inspiration for Pineapple Express. Really? This character, he said, I wanted to write a movie about this character getting out in the world and being chased by bad guys.
0: I, that I did not know. That yes. is fascinating.
1: Totally. So Pineapple, Pineapple Express is kind of exploring this character of Floyd more fully, apparently. So.
0: so Brad Pitt was actually supposed to be cast as one of the lead characters. Now, Interesting. I don't know if that's necessarily Clarence or maybe it's Elliot or one of these other kind of bigger roles right With a little bit more screen time they just couldn't he was filming something else they couldn't make the timing work and they couldn't make the schedules work so but he wanted so desperately to be in this movie that he agreed to fly himself out for one day to just shoot the floyd scenes And, and that's what he did and it's funny i mean obviously they make it up to him later tarantino puts him in everything and won him an oscar anyways but he wanted so bad to be in this that, that he he went and did that. And he ends up being one of the absolute favorites of the movie. And totally. uh, Anyways, so, okay, let's let's bring this to a close. I have a final question. So we kind of did this last week. Um, a final question to pose to you and to the listeners, and that's this. So Tarantino, a- as well as we've talked about, or as much as I've talked about um, how I think this is the perfect marriage between everyone in their place, Tarantino originally wrote this to end much more like Romeo and Juliet, and uh, Clarence dies in the end. So, when he gets shot in the face, he dies. Tony Scott changed this, and this was a huge problem for Tarantino. He was furious about it, and he started, and exactly like what he preaches in this movie, what his characters preach, he's like, You made this all Hollywood, man, and you did this and you did that. And he was pissed about it. Now, Tony Scott supposedly shot the ending both ways. He shot it with Clarence dying, and he shot it with him living, and he showed them to Tarantino and said, you pick the one you want. And supposedly, Tarantino, after watching it, finally conceded and was like, yours is better. Like, let's use your end." And I think this is interesting, too, simply because when he gets shot and he falls, and I think I remembered after the first time watching it that he lives, um, you see when they do the close-up, his eye is all blacked out and red. So you immediately think he got shot in the eye. But yeah. th- then his... He has this cut above his eye and it almost looks like the bullet like yes like it grazed his eyebrow and she yeah. Alabama even has a line when he's trying to open his eyes and he, she's like oh baby you've got blood in your eyes right so it's like that's why you can't see everything like maybe he turned just in time and the bullet grazed yeah. and and whatever but then we see him at the end of the movie and he's got an eye patch on right and so you're like wait a minute Did he legit get shot in the face and lived? And then she has it like, oh, if the bullet had been two inches to the left or whatever the the line is. So that part kind of bothered me because I'm like, "Uh, I don't know if I'm buying you take a bullet in the eyeball and you're cool. But again, all that being said, my question to you is, what do you think plays out as the better ending? Is it better the way Tarantino originally writes it where Clarence dies? Or... The way that they did it, where everybody lives and it's kind of happily ever after in a way, do you think is the better movie? So I would pose that to the listeners. And Tim, I want to get your thoughts on it.
1: It's interesting because on first blush, I was really kind of bummed that he, I, I assumed he was dead because they dragged it out just enough before he shows some signs of life that I was like, he's dead. And really, nobody should have walked out of that situation. The fact that, that, um, that, uh, Michael Rappaport walks out and uh, Patricia Arquette <laughs> is out. fine. It sprints out. Uh, everybody else is dead. By the end of that scene, everyone is dead. There's nobody alive. And it just, it made sense that he wasn't going to make it. Right. But that's not how you want this story to end. you, you were kind of, you're rooting for these wackos like after you accept their initial let's just roll with this you you, you want to see them succeed and you want to see them go through with it so I think I like it the way it is reading into this afterwards Tarantino really says that autobiographically he had he refers to it as it was real punk rock to kill that character because it was him and so he feels right. like autobiographically that was the right thing to do but in this story that Tony Scott is telling about these lovers, it, it is not the right ending for the movie in the way that this was made. What I find even more incredibly interesting is that the original screenplay was written much more in the vein of Reservoir Do- Dogs and Pulp Fiction, where it was uh, nonlinear. And yes, I had that thought halfway through. I was like, I wonder what this movie would look like nonlinear. And then sure enough, it was written nonlinear. And I wonder what that would have looked like. Um, I don't know that it would have been the best for this movie. I I, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that would have, I feel like we would have known that they either both lived or, or, or that Clarence is dead prior to anything actually have happened. I feel like maybe Alabama's voiceover would have been, you know, more of a, uh, you know, we know how this ends and we're going to tell you how we get there sort of thing through, throughout the nonlinear narrative. But I think you you want to see them alive in the end. You feel good about, you know, these two characters just go on with their lives now. They they got their money and they're going to go live off of their 200 grand and have their little Elvis baby and be good with it.
0: I agree. And I do think, again, this movie was better served with tony scott at the helm making this a linear movie a more traditional storytelling experience and and i do agree with you at in the end i think them living does make the most sense although they should have cleaned up sort of that scene a little bit there is a part of me that kind of wants the tarantino ending but i think this is coming a year after reservoir dogs where we just watched everybody eat it in the bathroom you know what i'm saying so it's like i don't I don't need that every single time, which I feel is how this would have felt. Um, yep. And exactly like you said, by the time we get to the end, we want to see these people be okay. And and it just feels good and it feels right. And yes, that's kind of sell outy or whatever you want to call it, but it's what we want, man. Like That's what we're coming here to see. And you just, you know, to take that all away and, and make it too Romeo and Juliet would have, mm. I think, sit a little bit too heavy. And this would have been a completely different movie, obviously, and a totally different experience. Okay, so let's end this, Tim. Number one, do you recommend it? Number two, what's your rating?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think if you go into it after listening to this, sorry about the spoilers if you're going to do that, uh, but... I apologize for nothing, you (laughs) monsters. (laughs) Um, I think once you accept that The Camp and that this is a 90s movie, um, you know, we've talked off air a little bit about... Um, the original bad boys there's just a hue and a colorization to these 90s action movies that's that also that gratuitous over the top violence that's almost comical violence in a way it's not very realistic right um once once you once you accept that that is part of what makes this movie it's one of those things that like you said it's it's one of those things like you feel like that's a reason you shouldn't like it but you just do it's it's great it's really fun and um it is a fun exercise in being one of the i think the only example of a a tarantino movie not directed by tarantino and just to see that is fascinating um you know it's it's just and then couple it with everything I've said about the actors and the cast, um, you know, the 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 veritable uh, who's who of popular then, popular now. Uh, it is just an all-star uh, making, uh, in the making. For a movie a- at that time, it's just the past and the present. Um, it, it's, uh, yes, uh, I absolutely watch it. Um, I'll watch it again for sure. I'll go 7 out of 10. Yeah.
0: Very nice. Yeah, I, I agree completely. This movie is fantastic. And it's fantastic in all the ways you'd want it to be. It baffles the mind. It's a true pleasure to watch from start to finish. There's something in it for everybody. If you like the cheesy, campy love story, you're going to like it. If you don't like that, you're going to like that they're kind of making fun of it. It's got the blood and it's got the mobsters. It's got narc cops. It's got drugs. It's got Hollywood and odes to Hollywood. It's got bashing Hollywood. It's got comics. It's got a sex scene. It's got it all, right? And so, but more than anything, it has incredible writing It has brilliant acting, it has beautiful cinematography, it has incredible direction, and we talked about this man, Tony Scott, just getting every drop out of every person. It has every cameo you can imagine, and it seems like everyone genuinely wants to be there because they're just bringing A game. Um yes, it's camp. Yes, it's 90s. Some of the cuts and the edits are a little bit jaggedy and weird, like all of a sudden you end up at a at a phone booth and then you're back in a car and whatever. But you forgive all of that because it just kind of makes sense. And like I said, you don't you don't know always why you forgive it, but you do. And it's got the ending that you like and everybody's happy and everything's great in the end. And it's it's great. It's it's freaking great. Um, it's free right now on Prime Video, so 100% it's worth watching for free. You can also buy it for $12.99. I'm going to be real honest with you. This is a huge recommendation from me for purchase. If you like Tarantino movies, I would recommend it. If you love 90s movies, you should buy it. going to revisit it. You know, you're gonna tell people about it. Um, it's it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. I give it an eight out of ten. And I think arguably it's among one of his best written movies. Absolutely.
1: Yep. No question. I, I, I mean, I simply wanna watch it again just for those characters that did not get enough screen time. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's the bottom line that
0: i'm telling you gary oldman it he's an absolute game changer for
1: me absolutely uh, it, watch that scene if nothing else and then decide if you want to watch the rest of the movie uh, it's just it's totally worth it so true it's totally worth it
0: all right tim did we forget anything
1: if we did we've truly forgotten it
0: yeah that is true guys thank you so much for listening as always Hit us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are at paused reviews with an S at the end. It is plural. Send us messages, recommendations, questions, whatever. We want to talk about it. We want to get into this dialogue with you guys. It's why we do what we do. What else, man? That's about it. Keep listening. Keep enjoying. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Uh, And we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, We're going to be talking for love of the game with Kevin Costner, a little date night movie with uh, scratching a little bit of the itch that you have for some baseball.
1: Uh, 53 days without baseball.
0: (laughs) We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, I'm your boy, Frank. This is Tim. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. See ya.
1: Peace.